And this morning we're in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2. And these are Christmas texts, okay? I've already heard from some of you that it's too early to play Christmas music. And I'll be as Christ-like as I can in my response and say, get behind me, Satan. Because it's time. I might wear a Christmas sweater one of these Sundays here in October. Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. God, this is your word and we wanna receive it from you. Thank you for speaking to us. We pray that we would hear your voice this morning, that give us eyes to behold wonderful things out of your law in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in college, uh, I was assigned a book. Now, I went to a, a seminary that had an undergraduate. So I was assigned a book called How to Read a Book. I don't know what they were assuming College freshmen needed to read at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, but they gave us a book before we read any other books called How to Read a Book. Maybe you've read this book. It's by a guy named Mortimer Adler. Not a new book. It was published in 1940. So it's 82 years old. Immensely helpful in how to read a book. Uh, And I kind of laughed when I got it, and then I've returned to it over and over and over uh, for the last 10 years because he talks about not every book is worth reading. How do you know if a book's worth reading? Well, before you dive in and read every word on every page, you need to do a little x-ray of the book. Here's what an x-ray looks like. Read the front, read the back. In our day, read the Amazon description. Read the front, read the back. Look at the table of contents. Maybe if there's a conclusion chapter, look over it. There's an introduction chapter, look over it. Then if you want to take a step further, you can look at maybe the first paragraph, last paragraph of each chapter, and you're going to get a pretty good overview of what the book is about. And I'll tell you, the way I use this in my own reading and that I got from Mortimer Adler is go check out the table of contents and you'll get a picture of where the book's heading. Give you a little bit of a roadmap. Now, people get cute with their chapter titles now. Sometimes you can't always tell what they're trying to tell you in the book. But that x-ray concept, I think, is what Matthew was doing in these first few chapters. He's kind of given us a table of contents, and he's beginning to introduce themes that are going to show up for the rest of the book. He's introducing themes in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, that are going to show up for the rest of the book. And, And here's the question Matthew's posing to us this morning. 
how did people receive Jesus? How did people receive Jesus? And for the rest of the book of Matthew, we are gonna see the way people receive Jesus. We're gonna see disciples, we're gonna see people who are sick, we're gonna see religious people, we're gonna see people who are possessed by demons, we're gonna see uh, rulers and authorities, we're gonna see lowly and humble people, we're gonna see sinners and tax collectors and all these people receiving Jesus and Matthew is effectively asking us, how did they receive him? How do you receive him? And we're meant to find ourselves in these characters and, and reflect back on that and say, wait a minute, how do I receive Jesus? This morning, we're gonna see how Jesus is received. To some, he's a threat. To others, he's worthy of worship. But to Mary, he's a beloved son. So how did people receive Jesus? Right here, after he was born, Matthew chapter two. I think to some, we see at the very beginning, he's a threat Right off the bat, we see a tension of kings. I mean, just even notice the appearance of the word there in verses one and two. After he was born, in the days of Herod the king, wise men show up and ask the king, where's the king of the Jews? He's just been born, where's the king? So they're asking the king where the king is. And, and we're meant to live in that tension for just a second. Jesus is born king of the Jews. Now that phrase is not gonna come up again until the very end of Matthew in chapter 27 where it's also used by non-Jews to also bring political charges against Jesus which ultimately is leading to his crucifixion. Now, Herod is the current king of the Jews. So in some way, he was probably a little ticked off that they're asking, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? He was king of the Jews by virtue of ruling over Judea. But Jesus was king of the Jews by virtue of being born in Bethlehem, fulfilling, as Matthew shows us, prophecies from the Old Testament. And in this sense, what's quoted there in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, is a quote from Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. God here, this, this theme that's all throughout the scriptures of God exalting the humble, the tiny little village of Bethlehem becomes a privileged place because it is the birthplace of God's Messiah, his anointed one who's gonna bring salvation for the nations. But what is Herod's response? In verse three it says, he was troubled. That may be an understatement because we actually know a good bit about Herod. Herod ruled uh, during the birth of Jesus, but he didn't rule too much longer after that. And Herod was a very paranoid king. He was appointed by uh, the Romans because they were in charge of everyone pretty much at that point. He was appointed by the Romans to rule and he was extreme. He was so paranoid of other people trying to take over his kingship, take over his, his territory that he even at one point in his life had his two sons and his wife killed because of paranoia that they were scheming against him and probably historians think they were just talking about who was gonna rule when he died and he hated that so much he had the, his own family killed. He was extremely paranoid. And that shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us that Herod is threatened, that he's troubled, that he's paranoid, especially at the birth of Jesus. 
because we know what Psalm 2 says, don't we? Psalm chapter 2 comes right after Psalm chapter 1, which introduces the entire uh, book of Psalms. Psalm 1 talks about the blessed man who meditates on the law of God. And he prospers, whether it's in season or out of season, he's prospering because he's meditating on God's law. He's not walking in the way of the world, the way of the wicked. He's meditating on God's law. He's prosperous. He's bearing fruit. The wicked, though, they're not going to stand in the judgment. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Psalm 2 is meant to kind of be an extension of Psalm 1. Who is this blessed man? Let's not jump too quickly to apply it to us because the blessed man, ultimately, Psalm 2 tells us, is God's anointed one who will be king. And Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Psalm 2 has given us a sneak peek of what's coming. Hey, Jesus, there's going to be a Messiah come as a king and the kings of this earth will not like it. He will be a threat to them. But we also have in these first couple verses in Matthew 2, a foreshadowing of what's going to come in the gospel. Again, table of contents. We see a Roman ruler working together with Jewish religious leaders to conspire against Jesus. Now, I don't know that the Jewish leaders were fully conspiring, like they knew that Herod wanted to kill him at that moment. I don't know that they knew all of that. But they were probably just trying to quietly eke by in their religiosity at that point in history. And anyone who was going to be born with the claim of king of Jews, they knew was going to be a problem for the Jewish people. And so they wanted it to be quiet. They probably weren't thrilled that that was happening. And, and so right here at the beginning, you see a Roman ruler and Jewish religious leaders talking together about Jesus. And if we pay attention throughout the rest of the gospel, we know that that will happen and it will only increase in intensity leading ultimately to Jesus before Pilate, leading to his crucifixion. So Matthew is, is showing us that even the birth of Jesus, before he utters a word, he, first of all, is king because of Micah 5, 2, because Bethlehem is the city where David was born. And so Matthew is showing us this baby boy is the king. And his kingship is a threat to the kingdoms of the world. Now for us, Jesus can also be a threat to the authority we claim over our own lives. How will you receive Jesus? Are we so power hungry, close handed around the authority we have in our little domains, our little kingdoms, that any mention of someone who wants to be king over my life becomes a threat? That's the picture we get here from Herod. If we try to hold on to authority and reject Jesus' authority, then when Jesus shows up, when he's mentioned, when he's preached, when he's lifted up in your life, he will be a threat to you. You'll want to protect and guard yourself from this king. So that's one way we see people receive Jesus this morning. He's, he's a threat. But, but the other way is from some unlikely people, the wise men. To others, he's worthy of worship. So we see a threat to authority, but now we're going to move on and see an invitation to worship. The wise men are non-Jewish. We don't know a ton about them. We just know they're from the east, which means not Israel, not Judah. They were non-Jews, but they're seeking the Messiah. This phrase, magi or wise men, it was like super broad. So we don't have a lot of specifics about who they were, what did they do. They were 
loosely, generally, they're interested in things like astrology, maybe why they were watching the stars. They, they were like dream interpreters, and they read a ton of books about trying to predict the future and things. But here we have these non-Jewish people seeing some sign that's leading them to the Messiah. But this is all, again, should be expected because the Old Testament warns us that this is happening. There's an Old Testament fulfillment of the nations being drawn to God's Messiah. Sure, some of the nations are gonna be like Herod. Some of the nations are gonna be like Psalm 2, raging because they don't want God's king. But other nations will be like the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10 who hears about how amazing Solomon is, how wise and wealthy he is, and she has to come see for herself And she essentially glorifies God because she recognizes something in Solomon. Or Psalm 72, verses 8 to 11. This prayer that says, May he have dominion from sea to sea. May God's anointed one have dominion over the whole earth. From the river to the ends of the earth, may desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Or how about Haggai 2? We preached through Haggai last year. And there's a little bit in Haggai 2 that talks about Thus says the Lord of hosts, Haggai 2, verses 6 through 9. Yet once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Hey, all the riches of the nation are going to flow to this, what are they doing in Haggai? Temple, to this presence of God, to this Emmanuel. All the riches. So, so then when you see these men from the nations from the east coming to see Jesus bringing riches and spices and gold and putting them at his feet, we should go, the nations are coming and recognizing who Jesus is. This is a divine invitation to worship. But notice how they come, and then when they show up, what happens? It says they were overcome with joy. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why? I mean, they were searching for it from the beginning. They're looking for the star. They're going to Jerusalem. They're inquiring where he is, and they show up. And why this bit about the joy? Did they maybe think that there was a chance they wouldn't actually find the Messiah? I mean, think about how far they're traveling at that point with pretty unclear directions. They couldn't believe they'd actually found the Messiah that they were looking for from a star? I mean, this is a divine invitation if there ever was one. And I think part of what we learned from the wise men is that they were earnestly seeking God's anointed one. But the other thing we learn is that they didn't really find the Messiah so much as the Messiah found them. I mean, they didn't find him on their own accord, their own wisdom, their own strength, right? They had to be led there by a star, divine intervention, divine direction leading them to Bethlehem, leading them to where he was. 
And it's not so much the wise men drawing near to God, but it's actually God drawing near to them, saying, come. And it's the same with us. It's not so much us feeling and finding our way to God as it is God drawing near to us in Jesus. He who was God didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he, he let it all go. He emptied himself so that he could become a person and draw near to us. John 1 says he pitched his tent, he tabernacled, he dwelt with us, he came near to us. So while we can be inspired by the nations drawing in and how that's a fulfillment of the Old Testament and how we see all the earth is gonna recognize Christ's worthiness to be worshiped, at the same time, we've gotta recognize God's sovereign ability to bring people to himself. I'm considering how I have needed, to be saved, I needed God's divine invitation. I needed his miraculous intervention in my own life because like Paul says in Ephesians 2, I was dead in my sin and dead people don't decide to become alive again. I needed God to make me alive with Christ. And one of the ways that I think God's divine intervention and invitation in my life is I can point to relationships and I think you can too. A guy who does spoken word propaganda, it's a I, I like his, his music and his poems and he talks about the crimson cord and it's the song where he just names names and people's influence on his own story and it's fantastic and at the end he says, so that's my crimson cord, what's yours? Well, my crimson cord, I, I didn't ask my parents to raise me in church. If anything, I probably asked the opposite. I didn't ask them to raise, I didn't ask them to read me Bible stories growing up. I didn't ask them to be Christian and before that, I didn't ask my grandparents to bring my parents to church so that they would have a good, solid foundation to welcome me into. When I was a middle schooler, I didn't ask Rick Young to preach the gospel to me for three years with no response, bringing me to camp and to mission trips, welcoming me to hundreds of Sunday school classes and youth group every Wednesday, and he kept preaching. I didn't ask him to do that. I didn't ask Aaron Skinner to bring me to lunch when I was 15 years old and couldn't drive and say, let's go to McDonald's and, and talk about the Bible together. I didn't ask for that. I didn't ask for Matt Lawson to preach the gospel to me when I was in high school and to disciple me. I didn't ask for those people to come into my life and give me the gospel because I didn't want it. The truth is there are people that God sent into my story to point me to Jesus before I even knew I needed him before I even wanted him. So maybe like the wise men, I think we need to be encouraged by their earnest seeking of Christ, but we also need to be encouraged <laughs> that God is so big and so sovereign and so in control that he will intervene in your story. And if you're here this morning, this is a part of God's intervention in your story. This is a moment for you. This is a part of your crimson cord where God is inviting you to behold Jesus. Those people I named, Rick and Aaron and Matt, and so many more were a part of my story of pointing me to Jesus in a divine intervention type of way that I didn't ask for. I wonder what your story looks like. Who did God send into your life that you didn't ask for, that invited you here, that invited you to Jesus, that told you about Jesus, 
modeled for you what it looked like to follow Jesus? Like, you know I'm not normally this kind of preacher, but, but who, who is your divinely initiated star <laughs> that you followed, that you were like, I, I, I don't know how to explain this. You know, this, what's interesting about the star is people throughout history have tried to figure out, like, well, was, was Haley's Comet going by at that time? Or what, was there other, some kind of big thing that we can explain um, with, with astronomy of what happened? And then there are some that were close enough by that maybe they go, yeah, it could have been this. But almost every commentary I read said the best explanation we have is that there was just some divine intervention in the skies, so I think in that way, we could apply that to us and say, what sort of divine intervention has the Lord said, follow this, hey, listen to this person, and they're gonna point you to Jesus. And then how will you receive Jesus will you, when you get there? Will it be uh, offering him gifts and worship and falling on your knees? Do you realize how startling that probably was? He is a baby, and they recognized who he was and received him in that way, even as a child, and worshiped him. And I think there's a third way that we see here that's kind of snuck into the passage about how we receive Jesus. And it's Mary. We've seen a threat to authority, we've seen an invitation to worship, and now we're gonna see an offering of love. We can't forget about Mary, even though she's only mentioned a little bit in this passage. It says, and they go into the house, and they could have just, if they wanted to leave Mary out, it would have been perfectly acceptable. They went into the house, they saw the child, and they fell down and worshiped. But they say, Matthew says, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. What are we supposed to think of when we hear that? Like mothers do, she's probably loving over, loving her child, probably tired, feeding, changing, cleaning, occupying, smiling, looking for little mile markers even in the first few days and weeks and months. She's probably just being a mom. And then in come these obviously wealthy men, obviously non-Jewish men. And they come in and they get down on their knees and they worship the little one she's holding. That had to have been startling, scary maybe. But Mary knew who he was, remember? So this for her was a reminder that he is king of the Jews. He is Jesus, God's salvation. He is Emmanuel. He is worthy of being worshiped. Even though he is totally dependent physically on her in that moment, he is also worthy to be worshiped by her in that moment. So we're thinking of Mary. We're thinking of Mary who is a mother to Jesus but then, again, like Matthew's trying to do, he's trying to make us think of the story so far. We go back to the Old Testament. and We find a theme of prayed for sons being offered back to God. I'm thinking of Isaac, Abraham and Sarah. Like, you tell me I'm gonna be father to nations. I'm almost 100 and don't have a son. Sarah laughs when God says you're gonna have a son. God says, fine, here's, here's Isaac. I'm gonna provide a son for you. And then what does God do immediately? Hey, I want you to take your son up and sacrifice him. Now, you can debate about whether or not Abraham knew God was gonna provide another sacrifice, but the truth is it was a test of Abraham's faith. Are you willing to give up the thing that God promised he would give you? Abraham goes up on the mountain. God graciously provides a sacrifice because our God would never, ever require any of his people to sacrifice their own children. 
But what he was doing is saying, are you willing to give up the thing that you're building your identity on? Which is a son. You want a son more than anything. Are you willing to give that up for me? So they have a son and they offer him back up. Same with Moses. I mean, this is a time that was very dangerous to have a child if you were one of the Hebrew women there in Exodus 1. He was commanding all the Hebrew boys were to be killed upon their birth because the Hebrew people were growing too numerous or were becoming a threat to the Egyptians and Moses' mother has a baby, hides him until he's too old to hide anymore and then in faith just puts him in a basket, offers him back to the Lord like I, I can't, I can't keep him here, this is dangerous, offers him back to the Lord. Or, or Samuel, Hannah says, God, would you please look upon your servant? Give me a son. And if you do, I'm gonna give him back to you. I'll devote him to the work in the temple. Essentially, he'll be a Nazarite. He's not born as a priest, but he'll commit himself and his life to, to the priesthood. And that's exactly what happens. So, Now here in Matthew, Mary gives birth to Jesus and is immediately confronted with the reality of who her son actually is. Mary cannot hold on to her son forever. He's not hers to hold on to. He's born as a part of God's plan to bring salvation to the world. And she's not asked immediately to let go of her son, but she knows, she knows that one day she's gonna have to offer him back to God. And this early instance in his life of being a threat and hostility and worship kind of all mixed together in the same story is foreshadowing by Matthew of what Mary was gonna have to do one day in Jesus' life. That one day this hostility and this threat and this worship was gonna overflow to what ultimately leads to the crucifixion and the cross. It was a reminder of Mary of the calling on her baby's life. He has come from God to save people and be enthroned as God's king forever. But what Mary could have never guessed was that rather than being enthroned in a palace, he would be lifted up on a cross. Rather than wearing a crown of gold and jewels, he would wear a crown of thorns. He is king and he will be king forever and the best news about Jesus is how he decides to use his authority to willingly sacrifice himself at the hands of those who reject his authority for our salvation. Mary had to receive the real Jesus. We talked about the disruption this was in their lives. And a baby can be a disruption, but at the end of the day, a baby is a baby, and you end up rejoicing, and you're glad you have a baby. But then to be reminded, this baby is born with a mission. You cannot force this baby into your hopes and dreams for him. You cannot live out your life and your missed dreams through this baby. You have to receive this baby, Jesus, for who he really is. And just like Mary had to receive Jesus for who he really, uh, really was, not the son all of her friends had, or her cousin Elizabeth had a different story like that, or the dream of a baby boy who would just follow in the footsteps of his father. I wonder if at any point before we have the recorded adult history of Jesus, just wondering here if Mary ever thought, I don't know, like he's 28. Like, maybe this is gonna be kind of a smooth transition. 
to being the king of the universe and saving people from their sins. Maybe it won't be so like immediate and a shock to the world. Like, I don't know, it seems like I have a pretty normal son at this point, but, but she was forced to face him, be there and look at her son on the cross. Mary was forced to reckon with who Jesus really was even in this passage as the nations had flowed and offered gifts and riches to her son that she is holding and feeding and changing and cleaning. Mary had to receive the real Jesus and we do too. We do too. We can't force Jesus to fit into any certain kind of pre-fit mold that we have for him. We can't take the parts we like and dismiss the others. We have to take the real Jesus. So if you choose to not receive the real Jesus, I I pray that it would be truly the real Jesus. Tell me about the God you don't believe in. There's a pretty good chance I don't believe in him either. But if you're gonna dismiss Jesus because of um, myths or because of people who have claimed the name of Christ and have has ruined his reputation for you, I beg you, ask the question, who, who is Jesus really? Who is he really? And based on his own words and his own actions, do I, how do I receive him? How do I receive? See, I, I think Mary is such a, a phenomenal, I told Carrie this week as I was working on this. I said, I think Far and away, the women in scripture are just better than the men. I'm coming to the conclusion. My favorite character in the whole Bible is Hannah. And, And I'm reading this about Mary and I'm going, why is her name right there? Because she had to receive the real Jesus. She had to receive the reality that her son deserved worship. And we have to receive that too. He is the king of kings to reign forever, forever. And he would face opposition to the point of death but that death would be for us. And that resurrection would be to secure our life with him forever. Will you receive the real Jesus? You're gonna come face to face with him. He's gonna show himself here in the text as we walk through this. And he's gonna stand as he really is. All authority, you can't water that down. You can't take some authority. He's gonna come sacrificing for your sins. Yes, you have sin that you need to be atoned for. Is Christ gonna be a threat to us? Or are we gonna find him worthy of worship? Or are we gonna receive the real Jesus like Mary did? As we read Matthew, yes, this is a table of contents, I think, in a way, pointing to themes that are gonna keep showing up in the book of Matthew, but I think even right here, Matthew's kinda going, how do you receive this Jesus? How do you receive him? If he's the king of everything, surely he's worthy of your whole heart and affection and mind and life. Will you open your hands and let him have it? Or maybe you're using the mental blockages of why you don't believe in Christ and why you don't think it's true. And the real reality is you want control of your heart and life. And it's not so much that you think it could factually be uh, inaccurate. There are much smarter people than all of us in this room who have pretty much wrestled with much deeper questions than we will about those things and have come to the conclusion that, hey, I think he was real. I think he really lived. I think he really died. I think he really did come back from the dead. I think we can trust this. Maybe, if you're honest with yourself, the reason you're not following Jesus is not a mental ascent thing, it's a heart submission thing. 
But that's the way we respond to Christ, submission. And we receive the real Jesus. Let's pray together this morning. Jesus, we see you and we're baffled by you. I mean, you're a king and you came as a baby. And you don't wait to get worshiped. You don't wait until you're grown up and and an adult and can speak for yourself to get worshiped. I mean, you're worshiped and you're a baby. You're worshiped because of who you are, not just what you would go on to accomplish. But we're so glad that who you are drove you to accomplish what you did for us. That you are our salvation. You are our king. So would you help us to worship you like that, Jesus? I pray for all of us in this room who um, have different sort of histories and stories of, of, of the Jesus we've come to know. God, there may be people here who've never read one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. There may be people who've been in church for, for decades and decades. But I pray that we would come face to face, fresh and new, with the real Jesus on these pages. And I pray that you would soften our hearts to respond with humility and love to the real Jesus that we find here. Help us to submit to your authority, Jesus, that you are king. And we need you to be our king. There is great protection in coming underneath your authority. Jesus, would you just move in our hearts to, to respond well to your word? We love you and we're glad you love us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.